Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the National Secular Society podcast. I'm Alistair Lichton, Head of Education at the NSS, and this is part seven in our series of interviews exploring religious freedom. A few weeks ago, I spoke with Geoffrey Robertson, QC. Geoffrey will tell you about his work, so I won't do too much of an introduction. I am, however, excited to announce that he will be presenting the Secularist of the Year Award at our upcoming conference, Secularism 2019. There will be links in the show notes, and I'll be back at the end of the episode with more details. Enjoy. Geoffrey Robertson, welcome to the NSS podcast. Thank you. Would you like to start by introducing yourself to the audience? Well, I'm Geoffrey Robertson, uh, QC. My life is an open book. It's called Rather His Own Man. It's just been published in court with tyrants, tarts, and troublemakers. Uh, so uh, if you want to know about me, <laughs> read my autobiography. That's great. We'll have a, a link to that in the show notes. Um, what does religious freedom mean to you? It means the right of every person to if they're so minded, if they want consolation from some superstition or other, to embrace that. There are some confusions because human rights treaties sometimes talk about not only holding beliefs and uh, but also practicing them and some practices are simply not on in human rights terms because they have to be balanced against the rights of others. <laughs> you can believe what you like, you can believe in Rastafarianism or Scientology or Methodism or whatever, but if the practices of that religion impinge on the rights of others, then there are lines to be drawn. It, uh, religious freedom doesn't mean all those uh, fanatical Pakistani Muslims chanting for the death of a poor Christian woman. Uh, we saw that uh, obscene spectacle last year. Uh, that's not what religious freedom means. Um, what first drew you to human rights advocacy? I grew up in Australia where in the 50s and 60s where the churches were very strong and very repressive. It was a very repressive society, particularly a racist society. They had what they called a white Australia policy. They didn't allow any non-whites into the country. They had uh, a system, uh, they didn't include Aboriginal people, the indigenous people as Australians. They couldn't vote. They couldn't be counted in the census. Uh, it it was a stupid and brutal country, particularly because of the policies of the churches. And when I started to practice law, uh, I started to become interested in the way the court system was discriminating against Aborigines. A lot of, some of them were being 
prosecuted and convicted of crimes they didn't commit. And so that was, I guess, uh, the first thing. And Australia uh, was always very close to South Africa. It was playing tests, uh, cricket and football tests with South Africa, and Peter Hayne came out and I became friendly with him. And so I was involved in the anti-apartheid struggle as well. So they were the... Um, kind of issues that drew me as a young lawyer, I guess, uh, into the civil liberties, we called human rights civil liberties in those days. Uh, and we uh, had to fight for them against fairly brutal policemen. And of course, the other thing that I think makes Americans and Australians perhaps uh, a little more practical and uh, than British people is that we had to fight Vietnam. We had to fight conscription. We were being uh, conscripted to be sent off uh, to kill people and uh, who <laughs> are civilians and <coughs> children uh, who were simply of a different colour. And so we were pretty hardened, I think, by that experience. Uh, Britain did not go through that because of the wisdom of uh, the Wilson government in the 60s, but uh, it's often not appreciated how uh, that does perhaps make... It was interesting how, in when I came to Britain in the early 70s and got involved in civil liberties campaigns, just how many people had come from uh, Australia or uh, New Zealand or America uh, hardened by their experience in in anti-Vietnam campaigns. Mm, so interesting. I think we'll be speaking to Peter Tatch on the podcast. Yes, well, Peter is a good example. He grew up in Australia at the same time as I did. And uh, he got, he started, I think, with anti-Vietnam and then went on, of course, with uh, his gay rights. You're perhaps, uh, one, uh, certainly some of the cases you're best known for is defending gay news in the Mary Whitehouse blasphemy case, mm. and I believe you also acted for Sam Rushdie. Yes. So both these cases were around 30 years ago. Hmm. Don't mean to make you feel old. Uh, but how do you feel, though, this, what do you think the significance of those cases is today? Well, I think in Mary Whitehouse's case, she was a very vicious Christian. She was backed by the moral rearmament movement. And her uh, very right-wing views, she was totally opposed to, to gays. She tried to uh, attack the churches whenever they suggested the, there was any hope of salvation for them. And her agenda was to harness the courts, the law, to condemn secularism in various forms. So uh, she was rather liked by the, the conservative judges who were happy to say with her that Christianity is part of the law of England. And this was something that had to be removed. Um, she had a very belligerent, red-faced, tub-thumping, Bible-bashing uh, QC called John Smythe, who was always uh, thinking of ways to attack either gays or, or secularists. He was pr 
behind the Romans in uh, the uh, prosecution of gay news for a poem that suggested that homosexuals might get to heaven. And he was the architect of the attack on the National Theatre over showing a play called The Romans in Britain. Uh, which, yes, it showed uh, Romans uh, making, uh, raping Druid priests when they conquered Britain, but the real objection was that it showed in the second act the brutal Romans as the SAS and the paras, the paratroopers and the British army in Ireland. So it was a political objection. Uh, she was very right-wing as well as being uh, overly Christian and fanatically Christian and trying to use the law uh, in a courtroom crusade against the permissive society which was led by John Smythe who as we now know was himself a brutal sadist who used to was allowed to pick up kids from a nearby public school and take them to his shed and his potting shed and then uh, cane them for masturbating this was the sort of um, men secret mentality and uh, he was called in by a very stupid headmaster and told that he wouldn't be reported to police if he left the country and he <laughs> left for South Africa where he continued his extremely sadistic bent and uh, there were the, the police investigation only came out when a couple of his victims years later revealed it and of course they recommended his prosecution but uh, he died before uh, he retribution in the courts could be achieved but uh, that is uh, I, I suppose an example of extreme hypocrisy but he was the persecutor of gays and secularists in the late 70s and the importance of stopping them uh, and they were stopped at the Romans in Britain we managed to destroy uh, Mrs. Whitehouse and her private prosecutions. I remember her when the case uh, fell fell apart, was thrown out. She sat huddled in the back of the court with having financed this uh, expensive prosecution and uh, near to tears. She was enraged. She was fundamentally wrong in thinking that Christian, her particular religion could be enforced through the law, through, in that case, the common law. So it was very important to, um, to stop her in her tracks, which we finally did. But the, other, the, the Salman Rushdie case was quite different. It was uh, a case of international religious terrorism. The Ayatollah Khomeini put three million pounds down for someone to come and assassinate Salman and he went into hiding of course he hid in my attic for a while he was a friend not still there is he <laughs> no he's now courageously going about town town usually being New York quite openly although the bounty is still on his head but 
back on Valentine's Day 1989, when the fatwa was issued, uh, he went into hiding. And uh, the Muslim groups who protested, burnt the book, behaved absurdly given its contents, wanted to flush him out of hiding. <laughs> they served a writ. There was a, 17 Muslim barristers uh, brought an action for sedition and for blasphemy against him. And I acted for him. It was a good occasion to set out the evidence. And of course, when you looked at and analyzed the satanic verses, uh, it isn't blasphemous in any conception of blasphemy. But these people had been so keyed up I don't think any of them had actually read the book, uh, any of the protesters, uh, and there they were burning it, and in some protests a number of people were killed uh, because hyped up. And so I think the action brought against him. It was important in ending prosecutions for sedition which was a stupid old law that was still around and the court ruled that it couldn't be brought unless there was violence. And it was important in ending blasphemy because it ruled that blasphemy didn't apply to religions other than Christianity or in fact to attacks on other than the established church of England. So, so it couldn't stay. We had to abolish the blasphemy laws because we couldn't have this discriminatory criminal offence. So it helped in the path, in the progress towards a secular society. Uh, at the end of the day, Christianity was no longer part of the law of England and we had uh, a, a more we didn't have crimes that could be used against secularists or gays. Would you agree that there's a bit of an echo of that dynamic today, that if we look at the threats to religious freedom, you have on the one hand physical violence, international terrorism, international you know, authoritarian regimes mm. uh, physically oppressing, and then you have people pursuing a legal strategy to undermine rights or to assert through legal strategy a right to discriminate? Well, I think there are still groups of Christians, of course, particularly, but also other religions. Jewish religion has now the churches of Christianity, the temples, the um, Muslim groups, look to the law, but increasingly, interestingly and ironically, they're starting to look to human rights law because they do have rights and a number of cases are exploring just where the line is drawn. We have, uh, for example, the, the, the bakers who refused to ice a, gay, a cake for a gay marriage and things like that. These issues need to be sorted out and so tentatively case by case we try to develop it i mean in this country we're quite we seem to be relaxed about women who wear 
high jabs or low, that's, for my money, indicative of uh, the extent to which they're oppressed and, and is insulting. But any sort of ban on it would not pass the test? Well, in France, they banned it. I would certainly not allow <clears throat> a woman wearing a veil to give evidence in court when I was a judge. But uh, whether they should be allowed to cover up in public is a matter that needs to be considered. There are arguments on both sides. And so we are seeing, uh, in a sense, the religious groups coming in to argue the, their case, but on human rights law terms. And a lot of the fuss about anti-Semitism, you'll notice there's distinctions being drawn between uh, criticizing Israel as a government, the Netanyahu government, and criticizing Jews generally, which, which is anti-Semitic whereas criticizing the Netanyahu government isn't. But it is making distinctions between those two. And I wouldn't have thought, I don't notice much criticism, there should be more of Orthodox Jewry, Jewish religion. Um, perhaps the fear of anti-Semitism is curbing criticism of the religion itself, which of course is not anti-Semitic. So it's drawing those distinctions. But the way we've moved on is that we are drawing them and arguing them out on the basis of human rights principles and not on the basis of some absolute law that Christianity must be protected or whatever. Mm. I think is that just maybe human rights has been a victim of it, its own set, like, success that we frame yeah, sort of all so. arguments in terms of this narrative of human rights and someone uh, I think there's a phrase which I'm not sure who to attribute to but it mm. various people of when you're used to privilege equality feels like oppression <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah. groups, that have groups that have traditionally been able to been privileged in society and able to you know, not have, be able to impose their values on other people. Yes. There's pushback to that, and that feels to them like oppression. I think that's an interesting point. Uh, but if I were a committed Christian, uh, I would feel uh, very lost today if I had experienced the, the law and the establishment in the days when Mary Whitehouse uh, ruled it, and that was in the late 70s and uh, early 80s. There is a lot of case law that's been developed since our adoption of the European Convention of Human Rights and the Human Rights Act uh, the, to deepen our understanding of what religious freedom means. Mm. Um, what can be done to make that sort of that record of developing understanding more accessible to people? Because I mean, I think it's fair to say that human rights are very poorly understood. Yes, I, I would agree with you, and it's not easy, because at this stage we're getting terribly complicated. I mean, I welcomed the Human Rights Act because I thought it would make the law less complex. We wouldn't have the old common law 
going from case to case, we would have a set of principles on which you could construct logical arguments. But because it's got caught up in discrimination law and there's, it's complicated to decide between direct and indirect discrimination and so on and so forth, uh, it has got a bit too technical. And while we're going through this process, the Human Rights Act has only been operate, operating for less than 20 years. And we're going through this process of getting precedence, of sorting out <laughs> what the law requires in particular cases. And so that takes some time. And I... I could go on about the need for better law reporting, the need for actually teaching kids at school human rights, starting from there, telling them what this basis of our law is all about and inviting them to uh, develop or refine it themselves. So, you know, it it is a problem with all law and it, a pity that it's still a problem with human rights because that depends on everyone knowing their rights and being able to understand it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll give you sort of an example that mm. comes up quite a lot. We, we tend to see these cases that we sort of, in the office, we rather derisively refer to them as fired for praying at work cases. Oh, yes. And um, I can't think of it exactly off the top of my head, but it's, you know, it's, uh, someone's in some position of power, a nurse, a teacher, and it comes out, and this is driven by these conservative, mm. uh, predominantly conservative Christian religious groups and you see a lot uh, this story comes out this person has been fired for praying at work mm. and, and obviously if someone was fired just for being a Christian that would be a terrible form of, of which we would, we would a secularist never tolerate but it comes out it gets a very sympathetic hearing in certain areas of the press and then months or years later it actually comes to an employment tribunal mm. where the case just you know, case is thrown out, out because, because obviously uh, yes you can be what Ever religion you like, so long as you don't ram it down other people's throats, and so long as your practice of it does not impinge on the rights of other people, whether your employer or your fellow workers. But what I'm saying is, is, is the coverage of the this is the actual employment tribunal mm. case, and this is what actually happened, mm. is just not comparable to the coverage of this person sounding sympathetic. I was just mm. fucked. I was just fired just for I was just saying what my what my Christian views on marriage were. Yeah, that and, gets a huge garbage. Infuriating out, everyone else and <laughs> insulting everyone else and assuming or saying that that being gay was a crime and so on. Yes, of course these pe. I suppose they do get uh, more sympathetic coverage, but and then again, sometimes you've got to admit the rights of Christians are infringed by, I mean, I don't mind if a BA stewardess leans over to serve me my drink and her crucifix (laughs) drops down as long as it doesn't drop in my coffee. Uh, You know, there are cases where overzealous secularism, if you like, has caused, uh, has infringed the rights of Christians. So uh, I'm not uh, upset that these test cases are being taken. I think balancing rights will mean that you have some cases that seem a little unfair, uh, but I'm not talking about uh, those particular cases, I'm talking about the 
constant building of this narrative case by case oh yes i know well christians love beating themselves up in a sense it's part of a lot of religions actually is part of the uh, almost the culture of being uh, repressed being oppressed being um, and really uh, christians shouldn't feel like that they are perfectly protected in this country and indeed the problems that Christians face in Egypt, in Indonesia, uh, I mean Pakistan, uh, it's time that uh, I think we concentrated on defending the rights of Christians in these other benighted countries uh, where they're surrounded by haters and, and you know people whose uh, behavior is uh, obscene and these are uh, typical uh, i mean i know obviously there is within china we have an officially atheist state persecuting mm. christians but predominantly this is uh where, where christians are a religious minority and you have a very authoritarian yeah. religious regime that are persecuting them mm. it's, uh, it's somewhat strange i would say unseemly Sometimes to be in a country where Christianity is so privileged and certain certain Christians obviously well, Christianity to is is too privileged. We have to get rid of the established church. It's crazy. We don't have a written constitution, but it's crazy that the established church is treated as if it's established in a way that other churches are not. And, and that's the Anglican church. It's ridiculous. They should have. 26 of their bishops cluttering up the House of Lords, adding very little, if anything, to the deliberations of Parliament. And uh, it's ridiculous that we should have prayers. <laughs> never forget the gay news case we're waiting to come on in the, those days, the House of Lords Judicial Committee was the Supreme Court. And at 10... 25, we had to sit there what, listening to the prayers with which the House of Lords opened every day. And it's ridiculous. We should, they're always Anglican prayers and we should get rid of them entirely. Parliament should not be, uh, it's a, perhaps not the most urgent matter. But well, I mean, we should. Symbolic shouldn't. stuff has. The church, it is mm -hmm. symbolic, uh, important in law, and of course, all the tax breaks that the churches are given are outrageous. You know, if you, uh, the churches are charities, even the bloody Scientologists can <laughs> claim uh, to be a church and to get charitable status. This is just ridiculous. But I think because that privilege is so accepted, it would mm. feel like a threat to religious freedom I don't think it is, but they might perceive it as a threat to religious freedom that being taken away. Well, of course, it's not a threat to religious freedom, it's a threat to religious privilege. I mean, I'll give a, an example. We had a campaign recently encouraging people to write letters to MP to support an EDM on uh, prayers in Parliament. Right. And this was compared in some quarters to, you know, the the scenes you see in China of you know the state bulldozing churches mm. and the scenes you see in Saudi Arabia of the religious police breaking up you know, prayer groups in private homes. Yes. To, I mean, where you actually do have an example of Christians being persecuted for praying. Mm. And this mm. is just, you know, not having prayers officially. No, prayers have no place in Parliament of what any kind, I think. What do you think the biggest threats to freedom of and from religion are today? 
Well, I think we've... It depends where you're talking about, if I may say so. There is no threat to religion in Britain. We, except for some of the nutty DUPers and and the ranters in perhaps in Northern Ireland, but there is no real threat to religion in this country. But if you look at the wider world, yes, there is threats to made by religious people and particularly powerful religions. And there are threats, as we've seen, to religions in countries where they're discriminated against. And it would take us far too long to <laughs> list those countries and those threats. But there are, I'm constantly being uh, sought for advice by religions that are genuine, but yet have powerful enemies, and usually other religions. I have a case at the moment where an utterly genuine religion based mostly on Tamil people in southern India, and they're being discriminated against, beaten up, and so forth, by extreme Hindus, and even by some atheist groups. So, you know, you've got to uh, accept that in the world we have terrible examples of religious hatreds. This is why we have a law against genocide and treat genocide as the worst crime, because that is a crime where uh, religious hatred usually springs out into mass murder. Uh, well, I want to thank you very much for your time. But before you go, we always like to ask our guests if they have any recommendations for films or books that do a good job of exploring religious freedom. <laughs> well, I can only recommend my own. Uh, if you want to read about uh, fighting militant mad Christians and Mary Whitehouse and so on, uh, read my book, uh, either rather his own man or the earlier one actually has a lot on the gay news trial. It was called the Justice Game, but in that, uh, in in so far as the Catholic Church is concerned, which is a real problem. You know, why do they have statehood? <laughs> why does this funny little enclave in Rome claim to be a state when? No one is born in it except by accident. And why should we allow the Catholic Church to get away with what I say is a crime against humanity, the the mass abuse, the abusing of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of mainly young boys? Uh, read the case of the Pope. That puts the case against the Vatican, at least, as a case of crime. I suppose films on that subject, there's rather a good one called Mia Magna Culpa. I think that's a documentary about how priests buggered small boys, deaf boys, so it was really outrageous, uh, and how they were finally brought to justice. Um, and there, of course, there's the film Spotlight, which 
but these Hollywood films irritate me because they make heroes out of journalists. And journalists, who I've spent much of my life defending, are a pretty miserable lot. And they only operate, they only do their job of exposing abusers, usually when they're tipped off by lawyers or, or by courageous victims. So uh, I see spotlight in that category as a hagiography of journalists who don't really deserve it. They didn't... Uh, expose the situation of paedophile priests in Boston for until they'd done a lot of abusing. And it was really the lawyers and, and the courageous victims who came forward. However, that's a personal uh, complaint. And you can read our review of Spotlight at secularism.org.uk forward slash reviews. Jeffrey, thank you so much for your Thank time. you very much. I hope you enjoyed that discussion and found it as uh, informative as I did. Since we spoke, it's been announced that Jeffrey will be presenting the 2019 Secularist of the Year Award. Rather than a separate event, this will take place at a ceremony at our major upcoming conference, Secularism 2019. The award is presented annually in recognition of an individual organisation considered to have made an outstanding contribution to the secularist movement. Uh, for example, last year's winners were Phil Johnson and Graham Sawyer for their courageous campaigning work over the many years to expose institution abuse of children and vulnerable adults in the Church of England in the face of you know, some quite fierce institutional hostility. Secularism 2019 will take place at the Tower Hotel in central London on Saturday 18th of May. We have a great lineup of speakers, including our keynote address from Rachel Laser, CEO of the Americans United for Separation of Church and State, and my guest on episode two of the podcast. Full details and tickets are on the website, sectorism.org.uk forward slash 2019. That's 2019. Student tickets are just £10, member tickets £25, and non-member tickets £50. So really fantastic value for money. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider joining or donating to the National Secular Society at secularism.org.uk. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.